Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander appears ready to bring his draft legislation on surprise balance bill into a vote this week. We'll have the latest when Matthew Albright checks in later in the broadcast. Also on today's broadcast, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has agreed to settle appeals for inpatient rehabilitation facilities, this following a two-year dispute with the industry. Reporting on this developing story will be Angela Phillips. Social determinants of health are now the hottest topic in health care. Alan Fink-Samnick goes behind the hype to explain why. The Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals has expanded its settlement conference facilitation program. Health care attorney Andrew Walkler is standing by to report on the new eligibility requirements for appellants. Health care attorney Nicole Emanuel has the RAC report, and health care attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week, a case management director from a hospital in California shared with me the basics of a new report apparently sent out to all California hospitals from the California Hospital Association entitled IPPS 2019 Post-Acute Transfer Adjustment Analysis. In this report, the CHA breaks down the financial effects of transfers to the eight post-acute settings where the DRG payment to the hospital could be adjusted downward. As I'm sure you know, if a patient transfers to one of these settings with a length of stay more than one day less than the geometric mean length of stay for the DRG, the hospital gets an adjusted per diem payment. Now, maybe the intent of this document was simply informational since the transfer policy is not new. But when the negative financial implications to the hospital are indicated in red and in brackets, it may send a subtle message to finance that they should work to reduce these losses. I can imagine the CFO asking the case manager why they are sending so many patients to home care, or even asking maybe if their length of stay on some patients is actually too short. Now, if that message arrives at your desk, simply explain that your staff works very hard day in and day out to ensure that each and every patient goes to the right post-acute setting at the right time and the money will fall where it does. Now to contrast that story, let me tell you about how one payer attempted to manipulate the coding system purely for financial benefit and what one physician advisor did. A case was discussed online of a patient who was discharged with a primary diagnosis of dehydration and a secondary diagnosis of acute renal injury. The patient was not investigated for acute renal injury, but simply received IV fluids. But since the payment for a primary diagnosis of dehydration is greater than that of acute renal injury, the insurer, um, one who the person posted, who posted this case said, we are all united in disliking, changed the sequence to make acute renal injury the primary diagnosis, citing a coding clinic guideline from 2002. 
Of course, this same insurer is notorious for removing acute kidney injury as a secondary diagnosis, claiming their arbitrary guidelines were not met. Now, while most of us read this with bafflement, one physician advisor did what we all should have done. She did her research. Well, before doing her research, she realized that when the coding clinic was released that they cited, her college-age daughter was still being potty trained. So the applicability to current coding practice had to be called into question. Dr. Melinda Battle from Biden Health in Greenville, North Carolina, went back to coding clinics and found that in the first quarter of 2019, they had a question about a very similar case, and the coding clinic experts stated, there is no rule that acute kidney injury should always be sequenced first, and the primary diagnosis should be the reason the patient was admitted. So kudos to Dr. Battle and a lesson for all of us. First complain, but then research. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Monitor Monday RAC report, here is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and thanks for having me on this Monitor Monday. I want to talk about policing the police or auditing the auditors today. I frequently encounter complaints by healthcare providers that when they're undergoing RACs, MACs, and more recently the TPE audits, the auditors are getting it wrong. As in, during a RAC audit, the RAC auditor finds claims non-compliant. For example, for not having medical necessity. But the provider knows unequivocally that the determination of not having medical necessity is dead wrong. So the question that I get from the providers is whether they have any legal recourse against that RAC or MAC finding noncompliance besides going through the tedious administrative action, which we all know can take upwards of five to seven years to get before the third administrative level, to which now, upon a recent discovery in one of my cases, I would have responded that the only other option for relief would be obtaining a preliminary injunction in federal court. To prove a preliminary injunction in federal court, you must prove a likelihood of success on the merits and irreparable harm would incur without the injunction, i.e. that your company would be financially devastated and that you could possibly lose your company if the injunction is not implemented. The conundrum of this criterion of being on the brink of financial ruin is that you cannot afford a legal defense if you're about to lose everything. Well, this past month, I had a completely different legal strategy and a completely different result. I'm not saying that this result that I got would apply to all healthcare providers who disagree with the results of their RAC or MAC or TPE audit, but I now believe that in certain extreme circumstances, this alternative route could work as it did in my case. When this particular client hired me, I quickly realized that the impact of the MAC's decision to rescind its Medicare contract was going to be more than the average catastrophic outcomes resulting from a rescission of a Medicare contract. First, this provider was the only the only provider in the area with the ability to perform these certain surgeries. Secondly, his practice consisted of 90% Medicare, 
an immediate suspension of Medicare would have been devastating. Thirdly, the consequence of these Medicaid, Medicare patients not undergoing this particular and highly specialized surgery was dire. So this trifecta sparked a situation in which I believed that even a CMS employee who probably truly believed that the negative findings cited by the RAC or MAC were accurate may be swayed by these circumstances. I contacted opposing counsel who was the attorney for CMS. Prior to this situation, I had automatically assumed that non-litigious strategies would never work, but this counsel listened to the facts. He asked that I draft a detailed letter with all the explanations of why she should overturn this without the normal administrative burden. In the end, CMS surprised me, and we got the Medicare contract termination overturned within months, not years, and without expensive litigation. It was a fantastic result, and I'm happy to explain that to you today. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. I was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Angela Phillips, Andrew Walklin, our special guest, Matthew Albright. This is Monday. It's June 24th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you frustrated by the same old compliance webcasts that are a rehash of everything you already know? Are you looking for fresh and timely content that is as relevant to your compliance team as it is to the HIM and Revenue Cycle teams? Look no further than the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. Your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news, Rack Monitor. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor educational webcast now so that everyone on your team and other departments will have the latest information to help stay compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. Sign up now for a free three-day trial. Click the tab above or visit the Rack Monitor bookstore. Thanks, Clark. And good news, that very popular webcast about how the new rules from CMS on the racks could impact you is now available on demand. It's the webcast by healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. It's excellent. Check it out. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So this morning I'm going to cover two very different topics. One, incredibly nerdy, both important. First, earlier this month, the Supreme Court decided an appeal brought by Alina and many other hospitals challenging the methodology the government used when calculating disproportionate share payments. But even if this sounds irrelevant to you because you don't deal with DISH, don't zone out because this decision has an impact on every Medicare policy. The hospitals were challenging whether CMS had properly followed its obligation to provide notice of a rule. The question was whether Medicare Advantage patients counted as Medicare patients when calculating the disproportionate share payments. But the substance isn't terribly important at this point because the issue has since been resolved through rulemaking. The question is whether the program guidance prior to the rulemaking was valid. The government asserted that because its policy was merely interpreting a rule rather than a substantive matter of policy, the government's action was permissible under the Administrative Procedures Act, or APA. The Supreme Court, in a 7-to-1 decision, concluded that CMS couldn't enforce its policy. The reason surprised me. 
the court determined that the Administrative Procedure Act doesn't apply to the Medicare program. Instead, the Medicare program has its own notice and comment requirement that are different from the APA, and they're less flexible for the government. Now, this case is quite technical, and I'm still working to comprehend all of its ramifications, but one key point is clear. You've heard me say that the Medicare manuals are not binding and are not rules. This Supreme Court case strongly reinforces that argument. Before you refund money, you should determine whether there's a statute or regulation compelling the refund. This Supreme Court opinion uh, demonstrates that refunding based on a manual is almost always unnecessary. Now, we expect another Supreme Court decision about the um, administrative procedure process this week, and we'll report on that soon. Now for something completely different. I got a call from a client that discovered three of its breast cancer patients had received genetic tests sent to the patient's home. No physician had ordered the tests. In fact, the requisition form says, physician missing. But we don't need to start printing milk cartons in an effort to find these missing MDs. It's a fraud scheme, and an expensive one at that. One patient sent in the test, and Medicare paid over $3,000 for it. Now, earlier this month, in fact, coincidentally, the same day the Supreme Court issued their decision, June 3rd, the OIG issued a fraud alert on this key issue. You may wish to consider educating patients that if they receive any sort of testing kit from their home, they should check before sending it back. And if you're looking for more information, there's a tab uh, with Glazer handouts that has both the Supreme Court decision and the OIG fraud alert. Now, my client asked me to report this apparent fraud to the government. And if you know of any instances similar to this, feel free to drop me an email because I will forward it to the same government officials so they can coordinate their investigation. Since we're talking about someone who's trying to commit fraud via the mail, the perfect song would be to just slightly alter the world party hit Ship of Fools to Ship to Fools because that's what these fraudsters are hoping. Here's hoping that patients will spot this risky and fishy business. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has agreed to settle appeals for inpatient rehabilitation facilities. This announcement last week ends a two-year dispute with the industry. Here now to report on this developing story is Angela Phillips. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Chuck, and welcome to our listeners. With the ongoing backlog to the appeals process, there have been a number of settlement offers in the past, and now there's an opportunity for IRFs to settle outstanding claims that are still in the appeals cycle. On June 17th, CMS announced voluntary settlement options for IRFs with claims that have not yet exhausted the full appeals process. The initiative is part of CMS's efforts to reduce the burden on providers with IRF appeals still pending. Here are the details. The settlement will pay 69% of the net payable amount for most claims that CMS approves for participation. And quite frankly, they'll approve most claims. There are two special cases that will be paid at 100%. Those are claims where the stay was denied solely due to failure to meet the intensity of therapy uh, requirement that 
interesting three-hour rule and claims that were denied solely because the justification for group therapy was not documented in the medical record. So those two special groups would be paid at 100%. Covered claims in the settlement agreement include appeals filed at the MAC level for redetermination no later than August 31st of 2018. That's a little different than some of the dates that you're hearing for other settlements. So your appeals have to have been filed no later than August 31st, 2018. And there is some leeway on that for specific claims. They also have to be currently pending or eligible for further appeals, so not yet settled. And there are a number of claims that are excluded from the settlement offer, and those non-covered claims are appeals that were filed by Medicare and Medicare Advantage plan enrollees, their families or estates, those claims filed by Medicaid agencies or Medicare Advantage organizations specifically, and ERFs that have filed bankruptcy or are likely to file bankruptcy soon. Uh, Also excluded are any claims related to the False Claims Act. Now there's a caveat. This is an all-or-none offer. If you participate, all appeals that meet the eligibility requirements must be included. You may not choose to settle some eligible appeals and continue through the appeals process with others. If you're wondering if you should accept the offer, consider your current volumes, your success rate on appeal, as well as the impact on your organization's financials of getting these claims paid in a shorter period of time. If you do decide to participate, act quickly. There's a number of steps, but the key one is to file an expression of interest from June 17th, the day of the announcement, through September 17th of this year. CMS agrees to work quickly to create the eligible spreadsheets, get your approval, countersign the agreement, and return payment within 180 days of the countersignature. For more information on the settlement, you can go to the CMS website and search Earth Appeals Initiative. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie's one of the nation's foremost IRF authorities, and you can read her reporting on this and other IRF stories on the Rack Monitor. In our new segment called News from Omaha, healthcare attorney Andrew Walker joins us now to report on expanded eligibility requirements for settlement conference facilitation programs. So good morning, Drew. So there are some new eligibility requirements. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck. Yes, there are, and they are significant, and I think it's kind of a natural evolution of the success of the settlement conference facilitation uh, process. Um, They've pretty much opened it up so that... um, almost everybody is eligible. You're not eligible if you expect to file bankruptcy because if you settle and you have payments to make, you have to make the payments. Uh, You're also not eligible if you, or or you may be excluded if you have any false claims litigation or any uh, investigations in the system. Um, But other than that, they've, they've really opened it up. If you have a currently scheduled uh, ALJ hearing, you wouldn't be eligible. But let's look at who uh, is eligible. Uh, first of all, um, you no longer have to have 25 claims or one claim over $9,000. Uh, anything even under $10,000 is eligible, but you would go to the SCF Express. And that's where you don't have an actual settlement conference facilitation but CMS looks at it and gives you a number and you accept or uh, reject. Um, 
So even the small uh, audits or number of claims uh, are eligible. Uh, additional changes, and this is significant, you had to have um, filed your ALJ by November 3, 2017. Now they've moved that up to March 31, 2019. So all those appeals filed between that period of time, and that's pretty recent, 331, are now uh, eligible for uh, SCF. So that is uh, very uh, significant. Um, additionally, you had a limitation if you had um, a statistically valid or statistical projection above a million dollars, you are not eligible. <clears throat> now, all statistical sampling cases uh, are eligible if they meet the you know the filing by 331.19, and that's significant. We have a client with over three million dollars statistically projected case who may now consider. Um, whether they want to utilize this process. The Department of Justice, um, similar to the current program, must approve any settlement for a claim over $100,000 and a, um, or a statistical projected over $100,000. And that's not cumulative. If you have individual claims and it's over 100000 they don't need to, but that's on uh, any individual claim. One thing you should also... Um, remember, and it's a little bit confusing because they say if an ALJ uh, case has been scheduled, it's not eligible, but eligibility extends to appeal counsel's cases. So it's just that period of time. If you have appealed an ALJ uh, denial uh, to the appeals counsel, then that will be eligible. Um, an important rule for hospitals to be aware of is that DRG cases, where there's a reduction from one DRG code to another, those have a special rule and will be valued at 30% of the difference. So that's uh, all you can uh, get for um, uh, your DRG reduction. So those are the significant um, differences uh, in the program. If it's not on the spreadsheet, all other cases get dismissed, so it's on the appellant to confirm that everything's on the spreadsheet. With that, Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Drew, very much. I was prominent healthcare attorney, Andrew Walkler. Drew is a managing partner, Walkler & Associates. And now with the latest news on the social determinants of health, here is Alan Fink-Samda. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck. 37 states plus the District of Columbia passed Medicaid expansion. Now, while the states disagree on expansion, there's a point of consensus. High numbers of enrollees with complex care needs exacerbated by social determinants, chronic illness, and insufficient resources mean the states can't afford their Medicaid plans. The proposed resolution, Medicaid work requirements. The challenges, total disconnects with reality. Now, 16 states impose Medicaid work requirements, six with legislation still pending. Employment minimums were set as a condition of enrollment from 20 hours weekly to 80 up to 100 hours monthly. Exemptions were defined for full-time students, those pregnant or disabled, caregivers, and in substance use, abuse treatment. Qualifying activities were defined across employment and community engagement. 
Disconnect one, new studies find barriers to accessing substance use treatment for Medicaid recipients. Provider and program deserts mean waiting lists up to eight months and denial of appointments and program admission based on coverage alone. Disconnect two, most targeted persons were already employed. The Urban Institute surveyed 1,180 adult Medicaid enrollees about employment obstacles. 60% worked in the past year, 19% worked 20 hours a week or, or more most weeks. Now, Arkansas wins the Disconnect Award. As the first state to pass work requirements in 2018, the action left more uninsured than any other state about 20,000 people falling off the Medicaid roster. These numbers courtesy of the first quantitative evidence on the work requirements by Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health released this past week. Disconnects three through seven, also from this data. The requirements did nothing to promote employment, offering little if any employment support or training. Enrollees had to use an online portal for reporting, despite 20% lacking internet access and another 20% lacking fast broadband. The portal was unavailable after 9 p.m., a problem since many worked long shifts or multiple jobs. One third of individuals subject to the work requirements never heard of them, 50% unsure if the requirements even applied to them. And over 95% of targeted residents already met the work requirements or eligibility for exemptions. I've got only enough time for a brief summary of work requirement challenges. The National Academy for State Health Policy has developed a nice table showing Medicaid expansion status, work requirement hours across the states, qualifying activities, population groups, exemptions, and all sorts of other good information. The 614 table update and URLs from the data I presented live in the links from Ellen tab in today's handout folder. Disconnect to eight, Medicaid work requirements are out of sync with reality. The answer, states must know what social determinants are predominant to leverage appropriate programming. Today's Monitor Monday listener survey sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors asked that very question. Which social determinant would you be most likely to seek reimbursement for? Homelessness, food insecurity, social isolation, such as no family or caregiver support, unemployment, or adult abuse, neglect, or exploitation. We'll check the survey at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. I was a consultant and author, Alan Fink-Sandwick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money listener survey later in the broadcast. Republican Senator Lamar Alexander appears ready to bring his draft legislation on surprise balance billing to a vote this week with an update on this very contentious issue. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Events are happening quickly on this and other related issues, uh, so we'll get right to it. Last Tuesday, the Senate Health Committee held a hearing on their discussions, draft bill for surprise balance billing. Once again, everyone in the room agreed that patients should be protected from surprise balanced bills. At issue then were three different approaches, right, to provider reimbursement that were part of the committee's discussion draft bill and that we've talked about before on your show, Chuck. Those three are approach number one, a national reimbursement benchmark, approach number two, 
arbitration, that is allow for negotiations between payers and providers and set up an arbitration process if those agreements fail. And approach number three, the so-called in-network guarantee, whereby an in-network hospital has to guarantee that all of the physicians working in the hospital will bill at the in-network rate. So the Senate Health Committee held a hearing on Tuesday, and then surprisingly, on Wednesday, the very next day, the chair of the committee, Senator Alexander, formally introduced their surprise balanced billing bill into the committee. The bill settled on the first approach, setting a national benchmark at a plans median in-network rate. No arbitration, no in-network guarantee. And just to be clear, by median in-network rate, the bill does not mean an aggregated median network rate of all payers in a particular area. It means the median in-network rate for each individual plan. So this isn't really you know, a standard rate, it's more of a benchmark because every payer, right, will have a different rate. So needless to say, the introduced bill is a considerable blow to providers who have been very clear that they are against any government rate setting. Now, this Senate Help Committee bill is significant among all the other proposals from Congress because people think of this bill as really the foundation for whatever is finally adopted. And Senator Alexander has said he wants the bill into the president's hands by the end of the summer. All that being said, nothing is ever as it seems. That's, that's true of uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies, Vegas slot machines, and it's true of any time everyone in D.C. agrees on something. There is word that members of the HELP Committee were unhappy with how quickly Senator Alexander introduced the bill with this approach. In other words, we're not at consensus yet on a surprise balanced billing approach, and we may yet see the knives come out and slow this thing down. Now, in related news, let me talk about breaking news, Chuck. Minutes ago, just as this broadcast began, HHS Secretary Azar and White House officials held a meeting to explain an executive order that the president plans on releasing today on healthcare price transparency. So although it won't be released until later today, White House officials in this meeting said that the executive order directs that rules be written that would require hospitals to be transparent about its prices, and this includes, quote, costs based on negotiated rates, close quote. So let me say that again. Rules will be written that will require hospitals to make their contracted rates in some form to be made public. Exactly what information hospitals and insurers will have to disclose is not specified in the executive order. White House officials said the details would be worked out during the rulemaking process. To use the president's own language, Chuck, depending on how the rules are written, this policy would be huge, with much more ramifications for the healthcare industry than the surprise balance billing issue. We're in for an interesting summer, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Matthew. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And now it's time for the results of the Modern Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Alan. Hello, all. Well, a quick review of this poll. Close to 40% of you said homelessness, next followed by social isolation at almost 25%, 
adult abuse was close to 20%, and then unemployment at a little over 10%, and food insecurity, 7.2%. CMS better get moving with that IPPS 2020 rule that will reimburse for homelessness and all hopefully soon to follow other ICD-10 codes. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Helen, very much. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday, and we thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Finksamnick, who just heard David Glazer, Angela Phillips, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Andrew Wachler, and our special guest, Matthew Albright. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday Interactive Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>